He is your God, and you are his people. And in all of this, in his covenant, he says to you, I will forgive your iniquity, and in your sin, or and your sin, I will remember no more. So brothers and sisters, having truly confessed your sins, our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And all of God's people say, Amen. The reading of God's word this morning begins in Daniel chapter 2, verses 19 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him, and it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. For thou hast made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed your thoughts turned to what, we, what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue, That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue of its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time, and he became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. We'll turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 7. 
For we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also be may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. If you would please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together now as a congregation, Psalm 67, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Fingers. It's a danger to be in the family of the Bible teacher because all of your secrets get revealed. God's word to us today in the book of Colossians, he lays out a, the, the, the working image of Christ, the pattern which we're to follow. And so, as so we've been looking through the beginning of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, he writes and he writes to them about his prayer, and central to that prayer, of course, is the praise about who Christ is as the beginning, as the head of the church as the reconciler of all things. He wants us to know who Christ is. And he, he writes in his prayers, you remember, he's praying for the church in Colossae that they would be filled up with the knowledge of the will of God and spiritual wisdom and understanding and that that would work its way out in a walk that's pleasing to God. And we see in the picture of Christ and what he's doing that he fulfills, he fulfills that prayer. He knows the will of God, and he walks in a manner worthy of God. He does good works. He bears, he bears fruit in good works and increases. And today we see then that that, that uh, picture of God's will wrought in us, it doesn't just stop at Christ. Instead, the work of reconciliation continues on in the Apostle Paul. So our section today in Colossians 1, 24 through chapter 2, verse 5, 
we're going to see some of the same things that Christ is doing in his servant Paul. And we have to be careful as we come to this text that we don't just consign what he's doing here to Paul in his special office as apostle. He writes first and foremost in this section as a servant. I, Paul, was made a servant of the gospel. And we know from the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 that God gave apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists for the equipping of the saints for this reason, to make them into servants like that, to mature the body of Christ as his servants, to do and to fulfill the work of Christ. And so in our passage today, we'll see Paul acting. He's going to proclaim his purpose among all believers in the first section and then particularly among the church in Colossae, how he goes about that purpose and what the message is. And so we'll see that then in, in these words. If you would, then turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I was made a servant according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fulfill the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, mature in Christ. And for this purpose also I labor, struggling according to his energy which powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great, I struggle on, uh, how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude, delude you with persuasive words, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you to ask out of the abundance of your grace to feed us with the riches of the knowledge of Christ. Help us to see in your word written the incarnate word who has walked among us and who teaches us the image of God. Give us ears to hear, Lord, and then feet willing to obey your word and to have our lives reordered according to you. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. I gave you in your bulletin again an outline. This, uh, this outline you can see is composed in two parts. So verses 24 through 29, and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, uh, compose uh, split halves of this passage. And there's two ways that you can outline this. You can outline this as a first chiasm in verses 24 through 29, followed by a reflective chiasm in the second half in chapter 2, 1 through 5. 
or you can order it as one complete chiasm. And I, I gave this to you because Paul, he organizes it, he organizes the, the, the mission this way, his goal, and, but you see repetition then in, in looking at his struggle and looking at his purpose and then looking at his message. And so we can simplify then our, our working outline to those three points, but they're fed by the very center of this passage. And so if you look down to verse 29, everything flows out of this truth. For this purpose I labor struggling, but the, the, the central truth is according to his power. The, the word there is, is, not, is not properly power, it's energy, it's the um, it's a form of the verb that means work. So the energy of Christ, and then he adds a, a second uh, adjective, powerfully works within me. So central to everything that Paul is doing, he sees Christ in him. And so every, everything flows out of this truth. His energy for the work that God calls him to, the very work itself, is a reflective of what Christ is doing. And remember that Christ's work, as we just found out in the last passage, is the work of reconciling all things to himself, in himself, to himself, through himself. And Paul sees his own vocation, his own labor, as composed as part of Christ. And so it all funnels out of Christ. The, the, the essence is Christ is in Paul. And we know this truth from, from, from Paul. We'll, we'll look at it a little deeper today, that Christ dwells in him, and out of Christ, then, he forms this work in and through Paul. So let's, let's just walk our way quickly through the text, and then I'm going to come back, and, and we'll make some observations. So Paul, Paul opens in his purpose, so we, we need to look back at, at verse 23. He says of the Colossians, that God is going, he's going to present them, Jesus is going to present them before the Father, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if they continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which they have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, or a servant. So Paul is a servant of this gospel that's gone out, and his service is part of that proclamation of the gospel that goes unto the ends of the world. So that's what Paul is up to. And as he then begins to talk about his purpose, he begins this way, I rejoice, I have joy in my sufferings for your sake. So part of the proclamation, and part of the proclamation of the gospel is found in the sufferings of Paul. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We'll have to, we'll have to think about this verse uh, because it sounds like we're adding to the sufferings of Christ. And we have to take it seriously. It sounds like that because in some way it must be true. Uh, we, we read on Thursday at book club a, a, a book called A Letter to the American Church. And he's commenting in part on Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. And Bonhoeffer, uh, he said that every sermon must contain a bit of heresy. Not real heresy, but it, it, it should strike us. It, it makes us wonder. And fortunately for me, Paul does that for us. So 
his message has the bit of heresy, at least to our, our ears, um, who are steeped in the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ. If I was to say this without the backing of Scripture, it would sound like a little bit of heresy. But whenever our ears hear that and we find it in Scripture, then we have to look a little harder because it means we're missing, we're missing one of the notes within the gospel going out to the whole world because we've, we've drowned it out with, with, one of the, one, with one of the other notes in the melody that God is, is proclaiming. And so we'll, we'll look a little more deeply at that. But Paul sees then, he sees joy in his sufferings and they're embedded then in verse 25, within this same purpose of fulfilling the word of God. He's made a, a, uh, he's made a servant again according to the household stewardship from God bestowed on him for the benefit of the church to fulfill God's word. So everything he's doing is then for this purpose, to fulfill the word of God, which is, verse 26, the mystery. So he sees God's word fulfilled among the church at Colossae as a mystery uncovered, the mystery that's been hidden from ages and generations but is now revealed to his saints to whom God willed to make known. What is the mystery? The mystery is the riches of the glory of the mystery in the Gentiles, and this is it, Christ in you. So Christ working in Paul through suffering, through the proclamation of the word, the two go together, proclaim the word, which is a mystery, and the mystery is Christ in you. So whole, the, the entirety of Paul's life from the very beginning is formed by the understanding of this mystery, Christ in you. We see Christ in Paul energizing everything that he does so that he does the works of Jesus. And his life then becomes a reflection of the life of Jesus. He sees his suffering mapped out on the sufferings of Christ. He sees what he's proclaiming as the message of Christ. So Christ in Paul proclaims through suffering and through word, this is the mystery, Christ in you. And obviously that, that needs a little more reflection as well. But he says in explanation, verse 28, we proclaim him. So a further purpose in this proclamation of this mystery, we will proclaim him so that we might warn all men. And notice the repetition here of all so that we might warn all men, teaching all men with all wisdom, that we may present all men complete in Christ. So this is, this is his purpose, to fulfill the word of God, and in that fulfillment to mature all men. It should sound like what Jesus is doing. If we continue, he, Jesus in verse 22, he reconciled us in his fleshly body in order to present us before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. And in Paul's life, he sees that mission then as working to complete in all men the maturation of the new man found in Christ. And this is why he labors. This is why he struggles in verse 29, uh, 29 according to the working of Christ, powerfully working within him. So we'll come fill out the other half of this in chapter 2, but let's go back then to verse 24 we have this question. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There's two things about, about this verse. Paul says that he suffers on behalf of the body of Christ. 
So there's some component of his sufferings, and this is why he has joy. There's some component of his sufferings which he sees working out for, for the benefit of the body of Christ. And then secondly, he sees it as filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We react against this kind of verse because it seems to say that Christ's afflictions were not sufficient. They, of course, were sufficient. In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I was not crucified. We see it throughout Paul's writings. So Christ's work was completely sufficient. Even in, in the, the last part of chapter 1, where Jesus is doing the work of reconciliation of all things, he's done it. So I wrote in the email when Christ died, his, his words on the cross were, it is finished, it's done, the work is complete. And yet still, Paul sees his sufferings as filling up some need, some lack in Christ's affliction. So what is it that's lacking and how does that benefit the church? Uh, turn with me to just a few pages back to Philippians chapter 2. And look in verse 25. Paul writes this, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all. He was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, not, on, not to him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that, that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete, to fill up what was lacking in your service to me. So here Paul sees Epaphroditus as similarly filling up something lacking in the Philippians church, church's service to Paul. But what is lacking there, what is lacking is their presence. You'll see this same idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and another messenger sent from Corinth. That, uh, there he's also filling up by his presence what is lacking in service. So one way to understand this then is Paul rejoices in his sufferings because, because Jesus suffered in his flesh. He died in his flesh, completing the reconciliation. We know that from verse 22. He reconciled us in his fleshly body on the cross. But Jesus, the died, resurrected, and exalted Savior sits in heaven so that his work cannot be seen now. So there is a lack in the presence of the work of suffering. So I want you to think about this. On the cross, as Jesus died, the veil was ripped from top to bottom. We're going to see that that's, that's part of the message of this mystery. The veil was ripped, and the way into the Holy of Holies was exposed. It was found out. And the way in was through the death of Christ, through the suffering of Christ on the cross. So that is the reconciling, atoning work of Christ. But now, the proclamation of what has been done must similarly be found in suffering. 
So remember, Paul's purpose, his mission, is the proclamation of the Word of God, to fulfill the Word of God. And how is it done? It's done in and through suffering. The proclamation of what Christ has done is written on his life through his suffering. And we'll, we'll look at one example of that suffering. But then a second observation that we need to have to, to begin to understand this is that Paul sees his suffering as belonging to Christ. So it's not just his. He doesn't own it. It belongs to Christ. So if you look then at verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because they fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. They belong to Christ. They are properly the domain of Christ as part of his body on behalf of his body. Paul sees his sufferings as filling up this lack. What does he mean? Think back to Acts chapter 9. Paul is on the road to Damascus, then named Saul, and the heavens open up, and Jesus calls to him, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you afflicting me? Well, Paul wasn't afflicting Jesus in his fleshly body. Paul was afflicting the people of Jesus, the people of God. And so properly in Scripture, we can see that the sufferings of God's people belong to Christ. They are part of the afflictions of Christ. First, Jesus suffered in his body of flesh on the cross. But then there is a subsequent suffering that also happens within the body of Christ. It also happens in flesh. You can see there in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh. But now the flesh is the drawn out, reconciled body of Christ composed of his people. And so Paul here as an apostle, as a sent one, a representative, begins this continued work of suffering. Suffering in the flesh, but as part of the afflictions of Christ, proclaiming the work that has been done. We'll come to an example of this in, uh, in just a minute. We need to hear this truth, though, that God's Word is proclaimed, God's Word is fulfilled in and among us through our suffering. In the book of James, you remember how, how James begins, my brethren, count it all joy when you encounter all kinds of trials, knowing that trials bring about endurance, and the end of this endurance is maturity, wisdom. It's similar to what we see in Colossians, but when we looked in James, the trials bring about maturity and wisdom, and at least there in the beginning, you're thinking about wisdom within yourself, maturity within yourself. So, And we know this to be true. And if you have children, you can realize this. If your children have no hardship, they gain no maturity. They remain children. You have to push them. You have to prod them. You have to discipline them. They, they need suffering in order to gain maturity. And so suffering works like that in us in that it causes us to grow up from children into the maturity of the new man of Christ. It gives us wisdom, the gift coming from God. And so God gives us the gift of suffering and through suffering, endurance and patience resulting in maturity and wisdom. But what we learn from Paul is that in addition to that, it doesn't just work itself out in us as individuals. So suffering does not just have a benefit for me. 
Instead, Paul sees his suffering as having a benefit because it belongs properly to the suffering of Christ, as having a benefit for all of God's people. Now, how far does that extend? Paul's sufferings, remember Paul was beaten, he was whipped, he was imprisoned, ultimately put to death. He was very much, he could read Isaiah 53 and say, that sounds like it's about me. I'm a servant that has suffered, that's been left alone and neglected. Do our sufferings accomplish the same purpose? Do they work in us? There's one way in which they work. So if you keep your finger in Colossians and flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so Paul sees that his affliction results in comfort. The Spirit comes alongside of him and encourages him, and that affliction and the resulting encouragement from, from Jesus allow him to be an encouragement, a comfort to those who are in any affliction. So there's, there's not a one-to-one as if you have to suffer the loss of a child to encourage someone who suffered a loss of a child. Instead, what you see here is that God comes alongside us in our affliction, We gain confidence in the hope of the glory and the grace of God. And with that confidence, we're able to extend it, to come alongside one another in in any affliction. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So that suffering extends in comfort, and it has this, this overabundance is a word that Paul uses in the epistle to the Corinthians, and both of them, it extends again and again and again. So in the reconciling work of Christ, the work of affliction is repeated in us and through us so that we encourage one another, we come alongside one another, we proclaim the hope of the gospel to one another through affliction. I don't think that's the only thing Paul means, but that's one of the things he means. We'll, we'll see another in just, just a bit. So if you come back to Colossians chapter 1. So he has joy in his sufferings. Now there may be a particularly pregnant sense in which there's sufferings. Tribulation is, is the word here, so it's not the, the word that's used of the sufferings of Christ. It is the word that usually is translated tribulation. I rejoice in my tribulations for your sake. There, there is an eschatological sense in which there's a, a, a pregnant time in giving birth where the sufferings increase. And so in addition to all of the rest, Paul sees then joy because he, he knows what's coming. He's seen within the pattern of Christ worked out on the cross, seen in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, who was humbled to the point of death, who became obedient as, as a man, was exalted unto glory so that every knee bowed and every tongue confessed. And he sees here that the result of these sufferings will result in glory alongside and with Christ. You can find that in Philippians chapter 3. We suffer with Christ, we'll be glorified 
with Christ. So he rejoices in his sufferings on behalf of the church, on behalf of the body in his flesh, and filling up that which is lacking in Christ's affliction. Verse 25. Of this, uh, my translation says, of this church. But if you read verses 23 and 25 together, Paul's making the same statement. I was made a servant of the gospel, which has gone forth in proclamation. In verse 25, he comes back to that same idea. I was made a servant. Enclosed in the middle is this suffering. So we see, uh, we see that the proclamation, the fulfillment of the word of God, is worked out in the filling up of the suffering of Christ in and through Paul's flesh and in and through our flesh. I was made a servant according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit that I might fulfill. We see that same word again, pleru. It's the same, same root word he's been using all throughout. Jesus is filling us up, and we see now then definition. He's filling us up with suffering. We were saved to be like Christ, to be filled with him, and part of that filling is a joining both unto life but also unto suffering and death. So we join Christ in suffering and death and resurrection and in glory. Paul says, I've been, I, I am filling up that which is lacking and parallel to that, then in verse 25, I have this stewardship bestowed on me to fulfill the word of God. So that word of God is fulfilled in and through suffering. This, this can seem a bit foreign to us if, we, if we're not reading through the Bible regularly to hear God's word to us on suffering. We share in the afflictions of Christ and in so doing, he's stamped on us. I told you that part of that filling up that which is lacking is the presence, the presence of visible suffering. The proclamation is made visible in us as we suffer. So the word spoken is joined by the action of Christ so that you can see it written in people's lives. Of course, that assumes a response to suffering of wisdom. We can, we can respond to suffering. and We can suffer in ways that, uh, that don't glorify God, that don't speak of the mysteries of Christ. We do that in First Peter. If, if we suffer for our sin, we're not suffering according to the suffering or the afflictions of Christ. But there's a promise inherent here. I mentioned in the book of James, I want to remind you of it. When we repent of sin, and there is still a, a consequence, there's suffering that might happen for a lifetime that came out of that sin. When we repent, part of the mystery that's going to be revealed is Christ is in us. He makes us new, calls us as sons. And that means that even our suffering is redeemed unto the purpose of God. Even our suffering that may have come from our sin, once repented, forgiven, and reconciled to God, that suffering is redeemed unto the purposes of Christ. So no matter what kind of affliction we have, if we are the people of God. If Christ dwells in us and we're called sons of the Father, then all of those sufferings of all kinds belong to Him. They're added unto the afflictions of Christ. 
And so Paul sees then his purpose is to fulfill the Word of God. You can see three ways in which Paul does that. So uh, some are applicable to us. So he's fulfilling the Word of God. Think back to then the purpose, the will of God in chapter 1, is that all things would be reconciled unto him. Jesus did that work on the cross, but it has continuing effects that need to be wrought out among his people. So that work of reconciliation begun and continues then in and through his people. So there is a fullness brought to the will and the word of God through Paul, and that continues in and through us. There's a second aspect to fulfilling the word of God. You can see that Paul also is an author of the word of God. And in his current suffering, so he's imprisoned, and what is he doing? His imprisonment, his suffering, is worked out in finishing the Word of God. He's writing the, 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 some of the last books of the New Testament in the midst of his suffering. So that, that suffering gives birth then to the encouragement of God's people very directly in the Word of God written and recorded for us. And then thirdly, there is a fulfillment of the Word of God in the working out, the revelation of the mystery that was hidden. So to understand that, we need to look then at verse 26 at this third point. So what is, what is it that Paul is laboring to produce? What message is he laboring to uncover through suffering, through speaking, through writing? Verse 26 says that message, the word of God fulfilled, is the mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So there's a mystery that's been hidden all the way backwards from ages and generations, but now has been revealed. What is that mystery? What has been hidden? And in verse 27, we can add then another adjective, to whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have this, this addition. What's hidden is a hidden treasure. It's wealth. It's repeated in chapter 2. We come to the full assurance of the understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what he's working to uncover, what Jesus uncovered on the cross and now he's proclaiming, here's the way in, is this mystery which was hidden is now revealed and which is riches and wealth, a treasure, a secret treasure. So thinking back, and I, I didn't dream this up, but thinking back then to the Old Testament, what was hidden? What treasure was hidden away that the world wanted? You see this reflected in, in all the stories of the world. There's, there's hidden treasure. There's treasure at the end of the rainbow. There's a pot of gold that people are seeking after. But, and, and we see it in our lives. We're yearning for God's gifts. Well, that treasure was hidden away in, in the temple. So there was a tent within a tent, and within that tent was a box covered in gold, and in the box was a, a pot of manna, the two tablets of stone, and Aaron's rod that budded. God's treasures are hidden away in his house. Flip over with, you, with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 9. You can see the author of the Hebrews using slightly different language. Hebrews chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. 
For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which was the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a, a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And it had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tent, performing the divine worship, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit is signifying, signing this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tent is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect mature, complete in conscience. So God gave in the tabernacle a model of history. The author of the Hebrews says that the tent within the tent is a sign to us. Because the outer tent was still standing, the way into the inner tent had not yet been revealed. It was hidden. Within that tent, you see the treasure. And if you, if you just think about the tabernacle and the temple, you move from glory to glory to glory, from bronze to silver to gold. You move in space upwards in time into the presence of God. And within that presence there, in the footstool, underneath the footstool of God, you see then treasures hidden within that ark. A coffin. And as long as the outer tent was standing, the way in had remained hidden. So think about what Jesus did. Paul just went through us, with us. Jesus is the beginning. He is the arche, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn of the dead. And in his death, he destroyed the outer tent. The veil was ripped from top to bottom. The way in was disclosed. What was hidden has been revealed. So this has implications for the Word of God. This has implications for the shadow of, of Revelation in the Old Testament. It's not that it wasn't revealed. It was revealed uh, e even as Jesus was talking in, in parables. He talks about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the secret that he, he didn't fully disclose until his death. And then that which was secret is exposed. How are we to understand that? This mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations has now been revealed to his saints. Paul wants us to know that we have all the riches of God. The way in has been opened up. And then in verse 27 we have another little miniature chiasm. To whom God willed to make known the riches of the glory of this mystery in the Gentiles... Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you see on the outsides the glory that, that was promised, the glory that's inside the Holy of Holies, where God dwells. God willed to make known those riches, to open up the way that was hidden from ages and generations past. 
and within to expose the riches of glory. Now, if you think through all of Paul's literature, he, he talks about these riches, and sometimes he calls them the riches of grace, the riches of his kindness, the riches of, of, of glory, but he's always talking about this wealth that God has revealed and he has given freely. Out of, out of his treasury, he gifts to us. God willed to make known those riches, and specifically then this mystery revealed now the sign that the mystery is uncovered, that the way is, is revealed, is in the, in the nations. So he says, the riches of the glory of this mystery is in the Gentiles, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. So that idea that, the, that it's given to the Gentiles, the Jew and the Gentile can go in, is the revelation that now the way, the way is open. The riches are unlocked, and the plan from God, the plan of God from ages past was to take away the outer tent and beckon in all his people, all mankind, that all might be made mature, not by the, 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 the goats and the calves of Hebrews 9 in the outer temple. So those were done out in the courtyard. You have the sacrifices being made. But now coming all the way in, he offers maturity, perfection, completion, the cleansing of the conscience. So we have this gift. And he, he tells us in, in the book of Hebrews, because we have this gift, no, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. So in a particularly present way, God opens up his storehouse for us when we come together as the temple of God. And we see it here pregnantly, is, is, is maybe doesn't ring as relevant to us because we don't think about Jews and Gentiles other than when we're reading God's Word. But if you're steeped in the history of the Old Testament, there's always been the Jews, they're close, but they still can't go in. And then the Gentiles are far away. But now all mankind are brought together in Christ. And this mystery then is that we are called to dwell in him, to abide in Christ. We're beckoned into the Holy of Holies, but even more than that, the mystery uncovered is that Christ himself will dwell in us. So the unity of Jew and Gentile speaks to the, the fundamental unlocking of the hidden secrets of God. The way into that treasury, to everything that we think we're missing, the hole that people find in their lives, God has a treasury of riches, everything that we need that he made us for, and he's opened up the pathway. Jesus opened up the pathway through suffering and death on the cross, and now the proclamation goes forth in Paul and now through us in suffering. This is the way in. It's been signified. You come in with Christ through suffering and death, and Christ abides in us, and we abide in him. That may not make sense to you, but if you think about your children, it can begin to make sense. Together, you have this mutually abiding in. They abide in you, in your house, but you also abide in you, in them. They are part of you. So you can summarize this, this, uh, this mystery is that Jew and Gentile alike are called sons of God because we now bear the imprint of the Savior, the firstborn, the image of the, the heavenly Father, and it's stamped upon us, and both He abides in us, energizing our work, 
giving us our vocation, our mission, and we abide in him. We're welcomed into his house to partake of the treasuries of God. And that's what, that's what we do. We gather around his table in his house to partake of those treasuries. I wrote in the email that we, we, we have the fulfilled treasuries of God. There, manna was a symbol, but Christ is the bread of life. He feeds us. He, he gives us life daily through his spirit. And here we, we eat of him. He teaches us, and particularly what Paul wants us to know in Colossians is that within that riches, within the treasury of his riches is all wisdom and knowledge. He teaches us not just the law on two tablets of stone, but instead that law was nailed in the body of Christ on the cross and now a resurrected incarnate word of God, the law made new as a royal law of liberty in James's words, walks among us and teaches us of the riches, out of the riches of God's grace, he gives us all we need of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul wants us to know it's all found here. There's no, this is why when, when we get to the second half of his, half of his book, and, and here even in chapter 2, he says, I don't, I don't want anybody to delude you with persuasive words, with, with other words, as if there's another treasury, as if there's, there's a, a, second, a, second, uh, a second outer tent that you've got to get through. That is a, it destroys the gospel. It destroys the work, uh, the reconciling work of Christ because it, takes away from what he's doing. It says that all the riches are not found in him. If we add then back the, the Jewish regulations, if we add back circumcision, if we add any, anything, and w when we get to that section here in chapter 2, we'll have to think about maybe some direct applications for us where our temptations lie. But the way in has been made clear, and there is not then a question of maturity in these riches given. Instead, the way has been opened, and all the riches are available for all God's people. Proclaimed in suffering, the mystery has been revealed. I had Hyde read for you Daniel chapter 2. And you can see the same language there as well, in that, in that case, there was a dream, the Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and it was a mystery. It's a mystery that could not be penetrated because his magicians and, and the higher-ups and commands, they didn't have the wisdom to understand. But Daniel, who's gone into a foreign land, he suffers, and God fills him with the wisdom to reveal that mystery. And what is that mystery? You remember the, the image? There's kingdom after kingdom, but then the final one, the stone comes and it crushes. It crushes all that went before and a mountain grows up. Well, the mystery revealed, even in Daniel chapter 2, is the mystery of God's people, the church. It's revealed in an early sense in Daniel there's a picture of Christ in his suffering and in proclamation, God gives him wisdom to understand that mystery. But today it's now fully revealed in the work of Christ played out among us. And so in verse 28, we proclaim him, warning every man and teaching every man 
with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So Paul's purpose and the purpose we have in our lives is the same. It's completing the work that Christ began. Not, not as individuals, not on our own, but as the working body of Christ energized by him. So he fills us with the gift of his spirit, and this is, this is the purpose of the filling of the spirit given by Christ at his death. He breathed out and he gave us his spirit so that we might work his works as the one body of Christ. Calling, warning every man, and that's what Paul does in the book of Colossians, uh, warning them, don't, don't go over there. We have all the riches in Christ. Here they are. Let me lay them out for you. The teaching and the wisdom, the knowledge of God, every gift given that we need for life and godliness is found here. God's word proclaimed in God's people. We need to believe and act on this so that we act. We act out the word of God in us as servants of one another. Part of that is coming to see that every suffering we have is God gives both for our maturity and as a gift to the church for the maturity of others. So that Vodi's cancer is her suffering, but it belongs to Christ, worked out for us. So that the way in that's been opened up into the treasuries of God might be proclaimed as she rejoices in the midst of pain only because of Christ, only because of the life that he provides, only because of the wisdom unlocked within the treasury of God, can she endure and proclaim with joy. There's a final part of that riches is authority. The, The rod that budded God gives to his people in the incarnate authority, the Son of God, sitting, reigning, and ruling in and through his people. All right, so quickly, uh, because we only have five minutes left, we'll look then at verses 1 through 5 and just just add a little bit to this picture. So Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. He uses that same word from verse 29. I struggle, I'm laboring, because I want to see the fullness of this work of reconciliation over which Christ is superintending. I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So three, three groups at Colossae and Laodicea for all those who have not seen me. So he's laboring even for those who have not seen him. We would find ourselves in that category. We have not seen his face. And yet Paul labored on our behalf. He suffered for us all the way through these centuries so that we might see the work of God imprinted on him. And this is what he says in verse 2. And I think it's, it's helpful if you, as, if you see this in the bigger chiasm as parallel to verse 28. Paul said, We proclaim him, admonishing, warning every man, teaching every man unto the presentation of every man, mature, complete in Christ. So three things there. Again, we have the same form. This is his purpose. So that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love unto to the purpose of obtaining all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. So the, the, the purpose is the same, but now we have additional words. So not just a warning, 
but an encouragement. So Paul says, I struggle so that I can come alongside you. This word encouragement is the same word as, as comfort in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's the word that's used to the Spirit, parakaleo. That he comes alongside us in the midst of our trouble, and he encourages us. He lifts up our hearts. Paul says, that is my purpose among you. And then secondly, to knit you together in love. The word knit, in the Old Testament, it's used in the Septuagint and it's translated instruct or teach. It has, has the idea with some force of bringing you together with an idea, but Paul now uses it to talk not just about teaching an idea, where you're, you're brought to persuasion by proof, but you're brought together so you're kind of forced together. There, there may be some tension there, but that's what we are. We are the church of the living God, knit together, brought together, because we're compelled by the work of Christ. So although we're different, there's tensions. Just as there was Jew and Gentile tensions, they're overcome through the work of Christ wrought out in love. In my world, you see this as a, a, a stressed film. So we make them with plasma. You can bombard it. You, you, get, you get higher stress in the bonds. But the, the bond of love overcomes then that stress. These two things together, which in verse 28 is a warning and a teaching of all men. In verse, chapter 2, verse 2 is a coming alongside an encouragement and a knitting together in love or for the purpose that we might get all that wealth that has been opened up. The way in has been opened. And he says, I want to come alongside you. I want to put you together in love. So the presence of the body together, assembling together, learning to love one another because of what Christ has done. So reflecting that in and among ourselves is necessary to come to wisdom and completion in chapter 1, verse 28, and to come to the full assurance of understanding. All that wealth comes then when we're brought together. You can't get it by yourself. It's not possible. So there is the, the, the wisdom that comes from the treasury of God does not come on our own. We can't, we can't obtain it sitting at home by ourselves. It comes in and through the people of God, opened up where Christ abides in us and we abide in him. And in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We're going to keep coming back to that verse in the, in the subsequent days. And then verse 4, he says, I say this so that no one may delude you with persuasive words. He comes back to then to his mission of fulfilling the word of God. He says, I'm telling you all of this, that you have all the riches of wisdom and knowledge in the people of God worked out through suffering so that you don't get deceived. Don't let anybody deceive you with persuasive words that there is some wisdom found outside of Christ, that you need an addition either from the past or from another culture or, or from voodoo magic. It doesn't matter. All the riches are found in Christ. Don't be deluded. And so he, he says, verse 5, you're not yet. Even though I'm absent in the flesh, my, my translation says body, but the word is flesh. Even though I'm absent in the flesh, because his flesh is in prison suffering. And it's suffering to uncover this very truth. If he's in, in, if he's in Roman imprisonment, we find out in, in Acts chapter 21 that the reason he's there is because they said that he brought a Greek into the holy place. 
So the, the, the very reason that he's imprisoned then is to expose, to reveal this truth that the way in is opened up. He, he didn't, but he did. He did bring the Greeks into the holy place, the true one, the real one in heaven. He says, even though I'm absent in flesh, that's where I'm at. Nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit. Because Christ dwells in them, in him a Jew, in them probably mostly Gentiles and some Jews, they share the spirit of Christ. He can say, I am with you. Not apart from Christ, but because they both abide in Christ and Christ abides in them. I'm with you and I see. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the stability of your faith in Christ. We'll come to those words and we'll, we'll deal with them in the next section, but they feed into some of the application that Paul is going to call us to. So for today, know this. Jesus calls us, after Jesus, after Paul, we see the image reflected not once, but twice. He calls us to partake in the sufferings of Christ, to proclaim his word in our bodies. So we say them, but we work them out as servants of the gospel, serving one another in suffering, in proclamation, and proclaiming to one another that the outer tabernacle is gone, the way in has been revealed, and we have every, all the wealth that's needed. So don't seek after another mystery. You can find one in the Revelation. There's a whore who's called a mystery, who's an alternate to the true temple of God. She offers wealth and riches like the, the lady folly in the book of Proverbs. Don't look to her. Look to Christ. If you would stand and let's pray. Lord, we come before you because we trust that your word is true and that your, your call to us to follow in this purpose and this mission is one that's good and right and we trust that you have given us everything that we need. So we pray today that you would unlock this word for us, that uh, you would apply it. <laughs> On our own, we can't do that. We need the work of your Spirit to uncover uh, these hidden mysteries. Even though Christ has died to reveal them, we need your continuing work in and among us through one another. And so we pray that you would do that. Help us to commit ourselves unto this purpose so that we would be known as servants of the gospel, as servants of the body of Christ. And Lord, help us to use our bodies, our flesh, as... Uh, as you wish, and to see our sufferings as belonging to Christ so that everything, everything is unto him. Lord, fill us up this morning with the treasury of wisdom and knowledge, with the life that comes from the bread of life at your table, and then send us out with the authority of our Savior. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.
be praised and we give. 